All right, this is part 10 in our study on the book of Amos. We've only done a couple here in the church. The rest have been done for the podcast. For those doing the Bible study method online, um, probably either tomorrow or Tuesday, I will establish where we're going next because I know some of the people are behind, I guess technically what they're calling the second reading or the observational reading. Um, I doubt we'll finish the observational reading tonight, considering that we've been averaging how many chapters per one hour of observational reading? Two. Right? So, we, And what chapter are we up to? Five. Five. So theoretically, we're only going to accomplish, we're going to be where? We're going fi- to finish six, and we'll be at seven. How many chapters are in there in the book? Nine. So that means even Wednesday night we won't finish. So that would put us maybe Sunday night, possibly. Now, maybe we'll go faster than, you know, I always think that somehow it's humanly possible, but we will see. Because we don't, we don't really know what's going to happen in each, in each chapter. So, for those listening online, just continue to work on the observation, right? Go ahead and formulate. You can do the next reading if you need to and formulate structure and outline and chapter titles and those types of things. Uh, but don't, don't worry about pressing on beyond that. If you, are, if, you, if you feel like you're ready to move on, just spend more time reading the book well, at least one more time. Even if you don't make any notes, just read the book one more time. And then we'll move to the uh, basically chapter verse, verse analysis portion of the study soon. I will, I will, I'll do another podcast episode probably Monday or Tuesday to kind of get us all on the same page there. But tonight it's observational. So let's do this. If you, if you were here and you took any notes, chapter three and four, point out at least one key observation for each chapter that you, that stood out to you. It doesn't have to be the, because everyone's observations are somewhat different. The difference here is we work through them together. So we somewhat are, should be on the same page, I would hope. But out of the two chapters, three and four, let's start with three. What was it, a key observation that jumped out at you in chapter three? Okay, the whole family of Israel is mentioned in chapter three, verse one, which is interesting uh, because primarily he's sent to the north, all right? Amos is sent to the north. Any other key observation in chapter three? What is what is what uh, literary device does he use in chapter three? Do what? Well, he goes to the phrase here, right? But what other what literary device is used throughout three? The rhetorical questions. Those rhetorical questions begin in what verse? Three, and they go all the way down to. Would everyone agree they stop in verse six? Or is there disagreement? All right, Sarah says eight. Okay, Some, someone justify their, their, their reasoning here. Okay, so that's verse eight? All right, so verse eight's where it stops? Agreed? Okay, how many verses is in the chapter? Fifteen, okay. So, rhetorical questions go from what verse to what, where? What verse? Three to eight, okay. Those are a series of rhetorical questions. 
Okay, and the rhetorical questions all have, supposedly would have an obvious answer, yes? Okay, all right, then starting in verse 9 to 15, he leaves the rhetorical questions. What does he, does he switch a kind of a literary device in verses 9 through 15? What, what happens in 9 through 15? Okay, do what, what did you say? What did you say? Okay, so based off these observation or these rhetorical questions, then what does he do with these rhetorical questions? What point does he try to make in verses 9, I guess all the way down to 15? Is there a major point he tries to make in 9 to 15 if you were to summarize these verses? All right, so based off the rhetorical questions, judgment is coming. Would that be fair? And it's going to be bad. Agreed? Look at those rhetorical questions. Do those rhetorical questions, would it be a natural conclusion based off those rhetorical questions to say, therefore, judgment is coming? Give me an example of a rhetorical question that would seem to indicate that 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 would be a natural conclusion based off these rhetorical questions. Right. The the rhetorical question is basically, hey, if a trumpet sounds, everyone should be scared and therefore a trumpet's been sounded, right? What else? If disaster comes, did God not cause it? Yes. Can two walk together unless they agree? Implying that they don't, that they can't walk together unless they agree and you don't agree with God. So based off all of these rhetorical questions, judgment is coming. Does everyone agree? I want to make sure that we are in complete agreement that that's the correct way of understanding it. All right. Is that... Does that get us all the way to the end of three? Yes? All right. That brings us to four. All right. What do we find in four? We see the same phrase here, right? And then immediately, what, what literary kind of device does he go with? Picturesque, allegorical, illustrative. I don't know exactly how you would describe it because he refers to some people as cows, right? Now, that's somewhat interesting because we know from the background of the book that Bethel is a major issue. And what was set up in Bethel? A golden calf. But these now, the people are referred to as cows, which is somewhat interesting, okay? Do we, do, does anyone have a good, uh, a better explanation why they're referred to as cows? No? Okay. Uh, he talks about them being cows from what verse to what verse? One to three, right? Agreed? Any major conclusion about the fact that they're cows from those three verses? Hey, you're cows. What's, the, what, what's going to happen to them because they're cows? Right, you're going to be taken, like, I guess, coming to get a cow and grabbing a cow to take it away. They're going to be taken away. Now, it's interesting. It uses fish hooks, which is just odd to me that it uses fish hooks. But we can't, some of these we can't clarify because we're doing observational reading, right? Like, why would you say fish hooks and not a lasso? I don't know what you'd use to grab a, ca- a cow. But, right, like, a fish hook seems odd to me. Fish hook cow? Does that seem, is that, am I the only one who sees an issue? Right? But, but right now we can't we can't work on that because we'd be going beyond our observational. Right now, what happens in verse four? Yeah. 
Okay, and, and chapter 4, verse 4, he starts that? Okay, well, I'll make sure we're in the same chapter. Amos chapter 4, verse 4. Oh, okay, never mind. I'm, I'm looking at verse 6. I'm like, we are, we are definitely not in agreement here. Okay, all right. All right. I was like, what are you people talking about? Okay, all right. Verse 4, I'm like, I don't know what you're reading. Okay, all right. No, I, I'm, I'm looking. I, I, was reading verse, I was reading verse 6 going, that does not say that, okay? But my eyes were looking at verse 4. Okay. Okay, I know that. Okay, all right. So then in verse 4 to 5, what would we call this? What would you, what, what kind of literary device is he using in verse 4 to 5? Is it, is it kind of sarcasm? It's almost like a provoking, kind of a provoking kind of thing, right? Hey, come on, come on to Bethel and transgress. Come on to Gilgal, multiply your transgressions, right? Okay, then what do we have in verse 6? And I know this is taking a while to review, but verse 6 to 11. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and do your sacrifices and brag about it, right? It's like, uh, yeah, it's very provoking. I, I, I think, I think it, it's, okay, it's almost a provoking kind of language. It's very interesting. All right, what happens in verse 6 to 11? All right, now for me, 6 to 11 is if, and the whole book. I am absolutely stuck on verses 6 to 11. Don't understand it. Perplexed, confused, makes absolutely no sense and raises 9,000 theological issues that could make me give up on Christianity in about five seconds. I don't understand it. Oh, yeah, it, it says that, but it raises a million philosophical problems. Because then the question is, every time something bad happens... Do we view that as, that's bad from the Lord. But then we have Job to show you that it's not. So then how do you understand when it's from God and when it's not from God? Hey, bad things are happening. It's got to be God chastening me. Well, no, actually it's not. So we can never determine, this is the, I, I don't want to start preaching it, but, and, but I'm going to do a podcast about it probably this week. I think, all, guess what we can do, Right? Let's think of it this way. Bad, bad things are always going to happen in people's lives, yes? Right? Do we, are we in agreement? All right. Now, guess what we can never determine? We can't determine the reason. Right? Now, we, we, the, theologically, we believe that whatever happens is because God decreed it. It's in his providence, Right? So we know God somehow is involved. Now that's already disturbing enough. Make sure you understand. You're going to be very careful when to say that. Okay? A child that was molested for 10 years, you don't want to say, well, God, God decreed that. That's messed up. Now, typically Christians will say, no way he decreed that. Well, if he didn't decree it, then why did it happen? You're saying he couldn't stop it? Because my Bible is filled with him intervening in different situations, right? If he can intervene and deliver an entire nation, I'm assuming he could stop one child from being molested. This raises serious theological issues, right? Okay, so guess what? We, bad things happen. Theoretically or theologically, we can assume God somehow is involved in it. But we cannot ever determine exactly the reason for it. 
Agreed? In Job's case, it wasn't because of sin. Some, some weird competition thing. I don't, I mean, that's just so disturbing, right? But in here, every bad thing that happens to Israel, what was the reason? Discipline chastening. So all, guess what we can, all, the only thing we can ever do is go, okay, God somehow is involved. All I can constantly do is look at my actions and see if there is sin. If there is sin, then, hope, then all I can do is repent of that sin, confess that sin, and strive against said sin. Right? But I can't assume that the bad things happen because I sin, because I got examples in the Bible where clearly people sinned and they walked out better off for it than they did. Abraham, every time he sinned or lied, he walked out more rich than he did when he walked in. Correct? He's like, hey, how to, how to develop wealth according to Abraham? Lie. Put your wife in grave danger and you'll get rich. Okay, that's, like, that's, that's not the way it works. Agreed? Or shouldn't. All right, all right. Okay, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it, okay? All right, so now then how does, uh, so this, this section, I'm stuck. I don't understand what to do with it. What do we do with verses 12 and 13? Based off this fact that they've received chastening, we have verse 12. What's the key phrase? Therefore, will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formed the mountains and created the wind and declareth unto man what is thought that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name." God is about to bring judgment against you. All right, now I know that took way too long to review, but there we go. Everybody got those basic observations from three and four? Because they did not listen to the chastisement, now they're going to get the judgment. Mm-hmm. Right? As far as what? Well, I think it's... Right. I think we can say this. Well, we know God is always involved in whatever happens to us. We may not know the reason, but we do know this. Whatever happens, we, we can look to our own lives to see if we have returned to the Lord in areas where we're clearly not following God. That's all we can ever look at and control. Other than that, we don't have a clue. We can know that. So I would agree, I, I would agree this at least gives us what we can know. We haven't returned to God. But, and no, whatever the reason or the purpose is irrelevant. Now, I wish it was relevant, but it's beyond our, our knowledge or ability. Does that make sense? Okay. Right, right. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. All right. Chapter 5. Everybody ready? All right. What do we start off with? All right. Hear ye. Now, hear ye has become the key phrase in what chapters now? 3, 4, and 5. Everybody see that? Got it? Okay. So, hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a... Lamentation, O house of Israel. Okay. Oh, 
See, I want to start, I want to start analyzing the verse. I can't, I can't start analyzing the verse. But I will say this. This gives us some uh, kind of identification of maybe the literary genre, the literary type that's getting ready to be used. What's getting ready to be used? It's right there. What's the literary type that's getting ready to be used? A lamentation or a lament, right? A lament is about to be used. Do we interpret laments like we interpret other things? Are there special characteristics in how to interpret a lament? How to read a lament? These are an observation you would want to write down. So let's ask this. This, I mean, this is just an observational question. He's getting ready to give a lament. Where is the beginning of the lament and where is the end of the lament? Whoever can answer this question gets $5,000. Okay. I'm joking. You don't. Okay, but sounds good. We have to identify the beginning of the lament and the end of the lament. Okay. What, what verse says he's getting ready to give him a lament? Okay, so I'm assuming the lament begins in verse 2. Would everyone feel comfortable saying that that's the beginning of it? Okay, all right. It's always weird when there's a great pause right there, okay? I think verse 2 would be the beginning. All right, where does it end? You think the lament is only one verse? Okay, no, again, that's not, I'm, I'm just listening. I'm just like to hear everyone's reasoning. Does everyone think that Stephen's got a good point there? That maybe verse three is the, that the, the lament only occurs in one verse. If it occurs, okay, let's do this. If it only occurs in two, what is the lament? All right. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just, we're making observations. The only way to do an observational reading is you have to throw out your observation. We, we test the observation more later on in the analysis. I'm just getting everyone an opportunity to hear your observation and make a determination if they agree or disagree with the, the observation. Steve, Stephen's argument is, is, is pretty good because in the very next verse it says, For thus saith the Lord... But is that still a part of the lament or does it seem to change? On some ways, it seems like a literary change. What do you think? Okay, well, let, we're not supposed to do this, but since we're doing it in a church setting, everyone grab a Bible dictionary and look up lamentation, look up a lament, see what you find. I did like about five podcasts on uh, laments. Just, I don't know, like what, two months ago, three months ago? Whole, whole like mini series on lamentations and laments. See what you find. If the Bible dictionary is not helpful, we will use other devices, other, other things. I could pull up my notes from that podcast series, but I'm not. See, morn or morning. Ah, I don't like that they do that. That's, that bothers me. 
I look up morn and morning. Look carefully and see if they specifically mention lament or lamentations. I think the dictionary says to look up morn and morning. Okay, in that, in that entry, look for what they say about the words lament or lamentation. Because I'm assuming they're going to group it in that a lament or a lamentation has something to do with morn or morning. I'm just, I'm just speculating here. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Does it give us any idea what a lamentation or a lament is in that definition of morn or morning? Okay. If we can't find it, we can abandon this. Okay. Okay. So a vivid expression of grief. All right. Wailing howls of grief. All right. Do they define it specifically referring to lament, or do they? Okay. For a lamentation. That's. I would love that job. Just go yell and scream like I'm upset. Okay. All right. Okay. So do this now. Grab a grab your iPad, your phone. Just look up the word lament or lamentations and look up English definitions. All of that seems to describe the emotion of the lament, the emotion of a lamentation, more than it seems to describe the literary nature of a lament or or a lamentation. But that's okay. That gives us a clue what to look for. Now look up lament or lamentation and just see what you find in your first English definitions. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Okay. To mourn deeply. Someone do a Google search for literary literary characteristics of a lament. So it's poetry expressing grief. So it's poetic, it's a poetic expression of grief. Why is that important to note? Why is that important to note? Well, you're looking for emotion, but you're looking po- poetic. Why is that important? Might not be a literal. In other words, you're like, it was so bad, I think I could die, where it really may not have been that bad. In other words, poetic may be an exaggerated expression of it, okay? Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. What are they quoting? Right, but is it a quote of something? Is it taken from something? Okay, just because... Okay. Okay, I just want to make sure that we're not missing a, a, a reference to something. Okay, I understand. Okay. So, you're saying open quotation, close quote, quotation, you've ended the lament. 
Okay, can we say this? Okay, we're, we're, in, uh, we're in chapter 4, right? In verse, this is what verse? Chapter or chapter 5, I'm sorry. Verse 2. And so the lament starts with the indicator. Now, this is, this is we're relying on translators here, because remember, the quotation marks are not in the original. All right, does everybody remember this? Everybody understand this? Okay, so according to the translations, you've got the NIV, King James, do they use the quotation marks? Okay. Oh, oh, I got a no here. Oh, we got two no's. Okay. Okay, and this King James... that. Okay, all right, so, the, so we, there's a difference even in the different versions of the King James, it appears. All right, now that's interesting, okay. Sorry? I have quotations for uh, verses 3 and verses 4 because it's saying this is what the Lord says and it begins the verse. Right. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But for the lament. Right, but all I'm saying is if the quotation mark signifies the beginning of the lament, and if they close the quotation mark, is it possible that that's the beginning of the end of the lament? I'm just, I'm, I'm not saying it, I'm not, I'm not making any dogmatic assertion. I'm just throwing out an idea. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. So, so no, 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 nobody can disagree with me yet because I haven't made a dogmatic assertion. Does Sarah see something that we need to... Right. Quotation. Right. This is what God says. Quotation marks. All right. So, that, so, so we. I, now, I'm not. Pro, well, I'm not making a dogmatic assertion, but let me ask. This is Amos five three. A lament's being used. Right. Question: Does verse three meet the description of a lament? Because we've looked up what a lament is. All right. So Stacy says the lament language is in verse two. All right. So what? All right. So read read verse two to me. The whole verse. I don't. King James. Okay, verse one is where he says he's going to take up a lament, right? Okay, so Stacy doesn't feel two meets the criteria of a lament, but verse three does. Oh, okay, the other way around. Okay, verse two is the lament. I thought you said verse three. Okay, I'm sorry. Verse two is the lament, and verse three isn't. Would everyone agree that verse two meets the requirement of a lament? Okay, maybe I said, uh, does verse three meet the requirement of a lament? I meant, does verse two meet the requirement of the lament? Everyone thinks verse 2 meets the requirement of a lament. And people don't believe verse 3 does. Okay? What do we have? Do we have a we do we have universal? Do we have no do we have Ovalo Victory Baptist Church agreement on this? Cuz everyone listening online will be like, "You're all wrong." Okay, but that's okay. Well, we'll, we'll I'll wait for that to happen later, but it, temporarily what do we do? We do we have agreement? Yes, no. 
That those 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 periods of silence. Okay. All right. Bobby's not sure, so he can't agree to anything. Okay. Okay. All right, uh, Diane thinks the lament goes all the way down to verse 27. Well, because the whole thing's sad if it just comes right down to it. But. All right, so <laughs> Diane now just threw in a completely different... <laughs> she just blew out. She just said, they're all wrong, okay? So, let's try this. Okay, let's try Diane's theory. The lament is, the lament is mentioned in verse 1. Everybody agree there? Now, can we find lament language from verse 2 to 27? Let's, let's make a list, okay? Everybody ready? Let's make a list. Everybody ready? Verse 2, lament language. Verse 3. All right. Okay, well, hang on. I'm just, let's start with verse 3. Go with verse 3. Okay, how many with a show of hands think verse 3 has lament, meets the language of a lament? No. Verse 4. All right, why, okay, Stacy is do, very dogmatic here. Definitely not according to verse 4. Why would verse 4 not meet definitely the requirement of lament? Do I need to read verse 4? All right, yeah. That definitely does not sound like a lament. That sounds hopeful. That goes completely opposed to a lament. Agree? For, the, for, for thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek me and ye shall live. That's positive. That's hope. That's, that's r- restoration, resurrection. Verse 5. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal. Pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to not. Seek the Lord, verse 6, and you shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. There is none to quench it in Bethel. Whenever you see seek and live, that's not lamentation language. Agreed? Lamentation language is, they're dead! The city is on fire! It's over! They've fallen! They're not going to get up! It's destruction! Yeah. And so I think if that lament of verse 2 is just a reminder of that. Well, the, the lament is the virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. But then he turns around and tells them, seek the Lord. Well, no, but it's not weird if we understand the idea of a lament. The lament is a poetic, exaggerated expression of grief. Right? It's over! It's finished! Seek the Lord and you shall live. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait. That seems to contradict it. Agreed? All right. Hey, how about uh, verse 8? Seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion and turneth the shadow of day unto the morning and maketh the day... Uh, and and mar- maketh the day dark with night that calleth for the waters of the sea... 
uh, poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is seek the Lord. This is seek the Lord. Return to the Lord. That's not lamentation kind of language. How about verse 9? God strengthens the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoil shall come against the fortress. They that hate him, that rebuke him in the gate, and they that abhor him, that speaketh uprightly. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, you shall take him burdens of wheat. You will, ye have uh, built houses of hewn stones, but you shall not dwell in them. This is a rebuke language. This is not, uh, this is not lament language. All right. Anything else that you see here that would jump out? For, seek the Lord and not evil, that ye may live. That's not lament language. Agreed? Yeah, we got to 14 here. Yeah, 15 talks about God being gracious. So, there, so I think we would argue that the lament language does not carry forward. In fact, the opposite language is used. So we will, we will restrict the lamentation. Okay. Okay, so language so can we say the lamentation language returns in 16? And in all vineyards shall be wailing, that would be a lamentation language. 16 and 17 has it, yes. Verse 18, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord, to what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear, met him or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even the dark and not brightness? I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Now, again, some of this goes right back to not lament language. It goes back to language of what? Judgment. Judgment language is not lament language. Well, prophetic is, this is what's going to happen. Lament is, it's happened. We're suffering. Oh, yeah. It's definitely got the... the oh, true. It's more of a prophetic judgment more than a lament. That's a, that's a, very, good, that's a very good distinction. All right? Well, do you see anything else between 23 and 27? Twenty-three to twenty-seven. What kind of language do you see, man? This is going to take the whole hour just to get through this. Okay, and I thought we, I thought we were going to get two chapters, but this chapter is causing us all kinds of problems. What 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 kind of language do you see in twenty-three to twenty-seven? Just summarize your basic language. What you're seeing. So, let's try this. I, I'm going to argue, this is my argument, I know not everyone may agree, that the lament begins in verse 2 and ends in verse 2. Verses 3 to 27 contains a call to seek God and live. And warnings of judgment. A lament 
a call to seek God and live and words of coming judgment. Now, do you think I'm missing anything in, in that, three, that threefold kind of... Do you think we need to add a category? We got the lament. You see the language about seeking God and living, right? That seems hopeful. That seems about like revival, restoration, right? You could argue words of warning, but the words of warning and judgment are somewhat linked together, right? Because the words of warning is why are they being warned? Because of judgment, right? Even, hey, about Bethel, what is he warned that's going to happen to Bethel and Gilgal? What does he say in this chapter? They're going to be, look at it, I think it starts somewhat, verse 4 or 5? Five? 5? He said, yeah, don't seek Bethel. Now, it's words of warning, but what, what's connected with it? Judgment, yes? Yeah, you're going to go into captivity. So, those are words, that, that does not meet the level of a, of a lament by no means, but it definitely seems to describe judgment. All right? All right. Uh, okay. Uh, Diane now says, I agree with that. I don't know which thing she's agreeing with, but, it, 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 but I'm, going, I'm going to pretend that it's me. Okay, all right. Okay, I'm going to agree that it, it, it's with me, all right? So, but I can understand. I want to make sure I can understand, though. If you just start reading through it, if you see the lament, you see some other language later down that sounds like a lament. I mean, there's no question. It does sound like a lament. So you can kind of say, well, that way I just got to group it all together. I could see, I would, there was a great possibility I, could, I would have done the same thing. I just think that the lament begins in two and ends in two, and then we have words of, what do we have? From 3 to 27. Words of judgment, or no, words of, of repentance and revival, right? Right? And words of judgment. And those words of judgment, it contains words of warning. All right? Okay, now we can break down everything that's being prophesied. We have judgment, we have wailing. There's lots of things being prophesied, but all of it is connected to judgment. Well, clearly we've, we've keep establishing that over and over. Picturesque, picture, and which is going to create problems at some point. Because, well, whenever you're reading this, the more picturesque it becomes, then how literal can it be? Like, and that, but, but we know all of the judgments are literal, right? Yeah, so then it creates a major hermeneutical issues. But we'll get to that when we start working through. So how would we, how would we break it down? Okay, Diane agrees with the judgment language and the warning language. Okay, all right. So, so I think now we have universal agreement. Okay, well, universal as far as just us, but all right. Okay, are we good to go with that? Do I? Yeah, Stephen does get the point because he made the argument immediately that the lament basically began in end and verse 2. So, Stephen gets the point, all right? That is true. That is true. All right. For what it's worth. You'll probably lose the point in the next few minutes, but, okay, but you, you got a point right now, okay? And at, at any point, you may lose that point. So, I don't really know how sufficient the point is, but okay. Yeah, anything else in that chapter that you think, whoa, whoa you're, you, we cannot move on. Anything else? 
And I know that in some ways, like I could sit here and try to read the whole chapter and try, I, a lot of that I can't do just because of time, because just doing this takes almost an hour. If I'm sitting there trying to read each verse and talk, it would be like, uh, on the other chapters, we had a little bit more time to read, but this one, the lamentation immediately caused all the problems, okay? All right, so are we good? If I, I'll just show you how my Bible breaks it down. Just because Now, I, I, I try not to look at these little chapter divisions, but this is the way my Bible breaks it down. A lamentation goes from verse 1 to 3. The seek the Lord and live goes from verse 4 to 15, and God will pass judgment goes from 16 to 27. I don't think that's completely accurate, but just show you that they kind of do break it down in those three different parts. All right. Anything else in, in chapter 5? I keep saying chapter 4, but chapter 5. Are you sure? Do you think that's a, a decent observational reading of chapter 5? Or do you think we missed anything? All right. We got like 10 minutes and 14 verses to work through in chapter 6. Okay. What, what do we have in chapter 6? I'm trying to hurry. I'm trying to hurry. Okay. I'm trying to hurry. Okay. Diane said, way to go, Stephen. All right. So everybody's happy for Stephen until we get to this chapter. Okay, all right, now, all right, here we go. What, what's the first observation that should hit us with chapter 6? Okay, we just stopped the, the, the phrase that was in what, 1 and 2, and then the here that's in 3, 4, and 5. Now we're to woe. Woe, all right? And that idea of a woe typically means what? It's usually like a curse. All right? Okay? Let's just, I don't know if the Bible dictionary has an entry. Just look and see if there's a Bible uh, dictionary entry for the word woe, W-O-E. Just, just to see. There may not be, but just to see. Make sure we have some kind of accurate understanding, if it is. I doubt there is, but if there is, we'll just see. It only takes a minute to look. Oh, there's an entry. Deep sorrow, grief, affliction. Okay. Okay. All right, so there's great dismay. It's something bad's getting ready to happen. Whoa! When you hear whoa, the next words are not good, right? Okay. Everybody agree? All right, so let's start. Now, I know we had to go through five, and I wish I could have read everything, but it just, that lament thing messed everything up. But all right, chapter six. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. All right, let's stop right here. We immediately have a word of woe. A words of danger, but they, danger is specifically given to certain people. And who are this? Who is this woe being given to? All right. The NIV says complacent. The NIV says at ease. All right. Or the KJV says at ease. Let me look at another translation here. Another translation. Well, okay, that's a good observation, but we'll, we'll have to get into that. Before we look that up, I know we're kind of doing verse-by-verse analysis, but it's okay. 
Woe to those who are at ease. So this one goes with ease as well, all right? So we have those who are complacent, those who are at ease. What, 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 what image comes to mind there? Let's do this. I don't, I don't want to, oh, I hate doing this. Look up the Hebrew word for ease really quick. Look up the Hebrew word for ease. Yeah, and the Blue Letter Bible app. Oh, at ease, secure. All right, so this is, they feel completely secure. In other words, they're at ease for what reason? They think they're perfectly okay. So in other words, they're at ease because they seem to be secure. They're not not worried about military threat, it seems. They're not worried about economic situations. They're secure. They're not worried about any, yeah, they're obviously not worried about God being upset with them. They're okay with everything. Right? So, woe unto those who are at ease. So, we know which group of people this is to. Where are they located or what or where, where do we get here? We get a lot of places. Woe to them that are ease in Zion. Let's stop right here. I know we're, I know we're breaking the rule, but we need to look up Zion. Okay. All right. Okay, which makes it very difficult. It's used lots of different ways. All right, so let's read it this way, and let's see if this causes a problem. I don't think this means woe unto those who are in ease in heavenly Jerusalem or spiritual Jerusalem, right? That does not make any sense. Would everyone agree? So it would make sense. Woe unto them who are in ease where? In the physical Jerusalem. Now, this is a little baffling. What do we know about Jerusalem as relates to the southern kingdom? It's the capital. That's what I, of Judah. Okay, thank you. That's what I want everyone to, immediately, this up, you should read this and go, what just happened? What has he been talking about all the way up to this point for the last couple of chapters? Israel, he mentioned Judah in what, two, the end of two, briefly? But then he went right to Israel, and then from that point it's been Israel, 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 Israel. And all of a sudden, woe unto you who are at ease in Jerusalem. Wait, uh, Amos, I think your geography is off. Your God is met at the ones in the north, but clearly God is even upset with those in the south. All right, that's interesting. So he mentions the capital of the southern kingdom. What else does he mention? In the mountain? And Samaria. What is significant about Samaria? The capital of the northern kingdom. So now he goes after the capitals of both kingdom, north and south. I find that somewhat interesting. Does everyone else? Okay, and then what else does he say? To whom the house of Israel came. And when he says the house of Israel came, is that referring, I'm, I'm assuming, mostly to Mount Samaria, right? Because that's where Israel goes. They go to Samaria, and they make that their what? Their capital. That's, that's, well, Bethel is really the, the chief, the sanctuary. So Samaria is like the place of their political power. What, go, did you have something? 
Okay. We have a disagreement. Okay. Stacy, when I is thinks when it says when Israel came, it's referring both to the north and the south, and that the north and the south become the. How does it? How does it read? The chief of the. The capitals of the nations. So, so Israel came to these two places, and then they became. Did so the house of Israel came to both places. And these both places became the capitals. So in other words, in some ways, he's still referencing them as united in the sense of like Israel, but he's, he's acknowledging that they have two different capitals. Is that, is that a better way of explaining it? Yeah, with Israel. Which, north or south? Yeah, with the nation. That's, that's, I think that's interesting, right? Because we could get focused on the northern kingdom here. Do I? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The two come and they've made these two places their capitals. Does anybody have a disagreement with that? Okay. Are we in agreement? Sarah's not saying anything, so I'm just waiting for the dogmatic declaration from the Pope. Okay. Right. Yeah, 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 like silence. I'm just like I don't know what that means. <laughs> okay, all right. Are we good? All right. So Stacy gets that point. Okay. All right. Now, next verse. All right. Pass ye unto Calne or Calne or Calne. What is this place? Look it up in a Bible dictionary. I, I know we're doing verse-by-verse analysis. I know we shouldn't do this, but we have to figure out what's going on. Because it names a number of places here, right? Kelnez and C, and from thence go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? Okay, all right. They're going to Mesopotamia. All right, so Mesopotamia. Now, what's interesting if Kalna is, is if it becomes a Babylonian city, right? Well, then, like, this is kind of weird. This seems to be like, is he telling them to leave their capitals? Oh, way after, yeah, if we pulled up a map, do you have a map you're looking at? No. Okay, all right. All right, well, yeah, what's, uh, Hamath, what about Hamath? Hamath, what do you have about Hamath? Look at, you can look it up in Bible Dictionary. Yeah, what do we know about Hamath? Okay, now we're in Upper Syria. All right, everybody see that? Okay. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Now you're in the Philistine area. In fact, I can pull up, I think I have a map here. I can pull up a map really quick. I don't want that book. Okay, hang on. Well, 
All right. So let me, let me, I'll try, everyone look up here. I'll try to explain how this works. Okay. Everybody ready? Okay. Down here is Tekoa, right? This is where Amos lived. If he goes straight up, what does he run into? Jerusalem. If he goes straight up, where does he run into? Bethel. Bethel, right? Then you would go up, you'd be in Samaria. To get to Kalneh, he's got to take a hard right and go way over here, almost to the edge of the map to get to Kalneh. Right? Hamath, he has to turn back and go literally to the top of the map. There's Hamath. And after Hamath, then where does he go? Right? To, uh, to where? Gath. Okay, is Gath even on my map? Yeah, Philistia's to the west. They don't mention uh, they don't mention Gath, but Philistia, he's got to come all the way back down. Well, oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm just I'm just trying to show how far the distance is in these places. Okay, that's all I'm trying to show. Okay, right. now so the, uh, let's uh, let's state it this way. In a roundabout way, what he's saying is this. Okay, um, uh, see, we're in verse, we're in verse, uh, we're in chapter six, verse two. Okay, so he, this is what he, so let's, let's try to get, make sure we understand this because we're out of time. All right, everybody ready? All right. Okay. Listen, everyone in Judah and in, in Jerusalem. Listen, everyone in Samaria. Woe unto you who are at ease. Because it, it sounds like judgment is coming, right? That's the idea of the woe, Right. Then he tells them, and I think Stephen is right here, it's almost in a figurative way. Hey, go check out, consider these other nations. Hey, and now, in other words, if you need to, you can travel there, but the distance here is insanity, right? I mean, it would take, I mean, it's crazy, right? They would be like, he's not telling them all to go leave and see, he's telling them to consider these nations, right? So, or, I'm sorry, these cities and other nations, great cities, key cities, and when he tells them to consider these key cities, what does he want them to consider? Are they better off than your kingdoms? Now, how do we understand the answer to that question? All right, you think the answer is, go look at them. Are they better off? And you're supposed to say, no. Why do you think he would be telling them to look at the other nations and determine if they're better? What does Israel has a continuing problem with? Don't they either look to make some kind of treaty or agreement with the other nations, intermarry with the other nations, or be like the other nations, or adapt the uh, religion of the other nations? So if we understand it this way, what is he saying? Go, are they better than you? And what should be the answer? No. Why are they not better than you? Because God is with you. Now, this raises theological issues. What else does he say? Is their land larger than yours? Now, that one is a little interesting. Because if we answer that as no, that would lead us to go back to the next, the previous question and say that's a no. 
did Israel have more land than these other places? Oh, well, I, I know it's the same question, but I'm just looking here. Um, Israel is much, uh, man, the land of Philistia is at least the size of Judah. Well, maybe not. Of time of Amos. Yeah, I'm looking at a map. Well, Philistia, if you look at where Philistia begins and ends, it's the exact same length. As Judah, the exact same length. Judah is wider, but they are the exact same length, at least according to the map I'm looking at. They literally named the cities and they have them, at, I mean, literally the same place. Well, I'm not saying, right, I'm just going with, how to answer these questions determines how we interpret this, right? Does that make sense, right? So I, I'm just asking I'm asking, how do we interpret the question and the answer, right? I agree that the first one seems to make sense, yes? No, they're not better than you. Okay, well, wait a minute. Do they have more land than you? Well, wait, now, do they? Now, think of it this way. Let me ask a question. When he says, do they have more land than you, is he referencing the nation or is he referencing the cities? The cities don't have more land. Right, but I'm just I'm just saying if, if we answer this that that you, we can we can we can walk ourselves into a major hermeneutical issue here, right? Because if the answer is no, they are they are better than you. Well, then how do we interpret this? So if if he's only referring to cities, the cities don't have more land than Israel and Judah. That's a fact. They don't have better borders than Israel and Judah. That's true. Okay, so then it's, so if we remove the territories, well then, I don't, that, now I don't even know if we can even begin to try to compare that. That would take forever. So then can we just assume that what he's saying is your cities are better than their cities? Yes? Oh, I, I'm getting silence. All right, so everyone interprets this to say, go look at these cities, and then what are the qu- three, uh, is he three questions he gives them? Two. Are they better, and are their borders better? Is there only two questions? Or does the NIV seem to hint at three? Two. Okay, now he says kingdoms. Oh. Oh. Bobby, don't make it more complicated on me here. I'm trying to work through this. Bobby, you're not helping. All right, come on. We don't want to get facts in the way of our hermeneutics, okay? I'd still say, I'd still say this. No. No, the kingdom is the southern. Judah is Jerusalem is the capital of the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. You can't reduce the kingdom to Jerusalem. It's a whole land they have here. Right? The southern kingdom goes all the way up to right before Bethel. Right before Bethel. When you cross the border, you ride into Bethel. Jerusalem is a little below it, and then you go up, and then you run into Bethel. It's possible, 
Well, all these cities obviously have great reputations. Well, the problem, yeah, I, I agree, but the problem is they use the word kingdom, which then creates all kinds of major issues. But let's go with this theory, all right? Just theoretically. Now, remember, we're doing observation, so all we have to do is make an observation here. We don't have to be dogmatic. We're going to make the observation, and we'll end with this, that, hey, guys in Jerusalem and Samaria, wake up, pay attention, you who are just sitting around thinking everything is good. Uh, what I need you to do is pay attention and I need to consider the following. I need you to consider Calneh, I need you to consider Hamath, and I need you to consider Gath. Right? Are they, are, um, be they better than these kingdoms or their border greater than your border? Consider them. And it seems that what we are implying, at least as of right now, that the answer is they're not better. And if they're not better, then how does that, what is he trying to say with it? We'll just read the next verse. Ye that put far away the evil day and caused the seat of violence to come near, that lie upon the beds of ivory, stretch themselves upon their couches, eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. What he's seeming to say is they're not better because look at how you're living. You're, you're kicking back on a couch of ivory. Now, that's the way I'm reading it. We'll stop there. Right. They're, yeah, they're not even worried about the evil day. They got, yeah, not even concerned about anything. Not concerned about famine or, or starvation. They're, they got food. They got, I mean, their couches are made of ivory. I mean, does any of us even have a couch made of ivory? I don't know if I want a couch made of ivory. That sounds very uncomfortable, but okay. All right, but you get the idea. It's, it would mean, it would, I, I'm not saying, I don't know if it was a literal couch of ivory, but what would it indicate? I'm assuming if you're using ivory to make a couch, you've got a lot of money. Right? Agreed? All right. So it seems to be the indication is, well, you're kicking back you need to realize how good you have it. Because you're better off than those great cities. That's the way we're reading it. I am open to anyone listening online to give me a a counter-argument or a counter-rendering of the text. All right? Any questions? Okay, is he saying spiritually? All right, so so let me just make sure we get, in chapter 6, we start with a woe to those who are kicked back and everything's good, right? Tells them to consider these other places that are obviously well-known and are well-renowned cities, yes? And the implication is, are they better than you? And the answer seems to be that what we are all agreeing on is, Absolutely not. Look at what you have. You're not worried about the evil day. You're not worried about anything. You're kicking back and relaxing. But it's all going to come to an end. In other words, you may be better off now, 
But judgment is coming. Does, that, does everyone feel that that is an accurate rendering of what we think based off our just very quick observation? Are we sure? Yes? At this moment. All right. Any questions? I don't know. I can't say. I can't say. Well, right now, I, I, right now, we've got enough questions. I don't, I don't know if I can add that at this moment in time. We'll have to see. All right. Any other up? Any any other questions? So, chapter five was a lament. Words of "Hey, seek God and live," and judgment. Agreed. Chapter six starts with a woe. And then a challenge, a woe to the, the complacent, the apathetic, right? The lay, however you want to describe them. A challenge for them to compare themselves to other cities. And then a reminder of how good they have it. And the reminder of how good they have it seems to indicate how we should interpret the questions. Because he wouldn't remind them how good they have it if the answer is not an obvious you're better off than these cities, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So that, I think that gives us a clue in how to interpret them. Uh, I, I, what I like to do is throw the question out and see if anyone, when we start reading the next verses, go, no, that answers our question. But you, you can see what we're trying to do. All right. Good to go? All right. We've got to stop there. All right. Lord God, we come before you this evening. All of us can probably find ourselves, if we are honest, acknowledging that we all become spiritually apathetic and at ease spiritually when in many cases we probably shouldn't be. Uh, Let this be at least somewhat of a warning to check ourselves to see if we are apathetic when we shouldn't be. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,